Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. I'm so glad to have you here. I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. What would you like to hear first? Well, before I tell you the good news or the bad news, let me tell you about thelastsymptom.com. That's my website for free resources. I hope you'll run over there. Please take advantage of that. And while you're there, if you'd like to donate and support my growing overall body of work with a donation, which includes this podcast, you can do that right there at thelastsymptom.com. You can also schedule a one-on-one appointment with me if you'd like so that we can Hash some things out and maybe uh, get you back on the right track or get you on the right track. Find out where it is in your perceptions that you are going about this thing the, the wrong way. Of course, my podcast here is all about authentic recovery. Authentic, permanent, real recovery from emotional disorders. So, that out of the way, what's the good news? The good news is that today... We get to hear from a Muslim living in Sweden who is dealing with the effects of borderline personality disorder. She said she's made progress since she discovered the last symptom, and so that's going to be very insightful. We're going to get to hear from her the particular insights that she's gained on this journey. As you'll hear in today's program, I was somebody she did not like. <laughs> she, she's pretty open about saying that she did not like me. So, it is a real testament to her sincerity and approach to recovery that she continued listening long enough for her to develop some trust in what I had to say and then to continue working through it to get to where she's at today. Of course, her being a Muslim is a really nice thing for my audience because I, I know that I have uh, Muslim listeners and I know that some of the, the issues that they deal with, which are particular to their particular faith, can create some difficulties just in the process of recovery. You know, I realize that my audience is made up of people who do believe in God and those who don't believe in God. I'm trying to address you all. So this is not going to be a religious-centric episode today. But, you know, as a Muslim, she does address some of the real concerns and issues that she has personally dealt with, being that she is a Muslim. So I hope that uh, those of you who are atheist or just not interested in religion at all will endure that and uh, find some, some gems in that portion of today's program anyway. It's, it's definitely not to be missed. Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is 
when she and I recorded the interview, I recorded myself just like this into a, a, a quality microphone so that the sound was good. And so really the only person that sounded like they were talking on the phone was my guest. As soon as we finished the interview, I said, all right, hang on just a second. I'm going to hit stop here on my computer. I did that, and my computer glitched. The, the entire interview, my portion of the interview, completely disappeared. It was an hour's worth, over an hour's worth, just completely disappeared off my computer, and I could not get it back. There was no way for me to get it back. You've heard me complain before about how frustrated I am with the technology sometimes. I mean, we, I think we spend too much time celebrating the great things that it can do. We're so occupied, preoccupied with celebrating all the great things that it can do that we don't hold these companies to, to higher standards. You know, if I pay $2,000 for a laptop, it really shouldn't be deleting hours worth of programs that I, I you know, I, that I can never get back. It just shouldn't. Uh, if I spend uh, $35,000 for a truck, I shouldn't have to take it back to the dealer five years later because the, there's a recall and the airbag might kill me. You know, we, we, should, we should hold these people to higher standards. And boy, I could talk, for, <laughs> I could talk at length on that. This week I had a package I was waiting from from FedEx. Now you think of FedEx... You think of an elite company, right? A dependable elite company. I mean, they even made a movie featuring FedEx with Tom Hanks uh, where he goes down in an airplane crash. All these years later, he still delivers the package that he was stranded on that island with. Well, uh, this week, I had a package coming from FedEx. Man, I just wasn't happy. I just was not happy. And the way they treated me was just unacceptable unacceptable and I told him so first of all this was a package I really needed so they said it was going to deliver on the 29th I, I went to their website it said it will be delivered on the 29th that was Wednesday before the end of the day so I guess FedEx is the new cable company because they just tell you we'll be here on sometime on the 29th and so you you completely clear your schedule for the entire day. It reminds me of that movie um, Cable Guy with Ma Matthew Broderick and Jim Carrey. He's waiting for the Cable Guy all day long. <laughs> he gets tired of waiting for the Cable Guy. <laughs> and as soon as he gets naked and gets in the shower and gets shampoo in his hair, he hears bump, 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 bump on the door. Well, that's pretty much, you know, FedEx these days, apparently, I, I guess, because uh, I waited around all day long on the 29th. This was a package I really needed. They never showed up. I checked their website, and now it says available whenever. I mean, it doesn't give me a date. Well, what would you think? I thought, well, it's been lost. I called them up. I said, there's some kind of problem. You guys are having some kind of problem. Oh, no, no, it's not our problem. You see, it's just, you're just misunderstanding how this whole process works. I said, well, what is there to misunderstand about your company telling me 
that my package will be here on this date before the end of the day. Not might be there on this date by the end of the day, but that it definitely will be there on this date before the end of the day. What What is there, the confusion about that? Well, um, you know, it just now arrived at the branch, and so it's probably going to be there tomorrow. I said, you know, this is you're, you're missing the point. The point is you put me out for an entire day, and my package isn't here. So now what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to clear my whole schedule tomorrow, too, and wait to see if this package shows up. She says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll put a trace on this. So we'll be calling you back. You, you guys are going to love this. She says, we'll be calling you back in two hours. So do not tie up your phone line. We're going to put a trace on this. A representative will call you within two hours. Do you know what time it was when I was having this call with her? It was 8.30. So she wants me to wait for the phone to ring until 10.30 at night. <laughs> well, I didn't have anything else to do, did I? So I said, okay. I had a friend trying to call me. I sent him a message. I said, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't tie up the line. i got to see if they're going to call me. At two hours and 15 minutes, I still had not received a call. Can you believe that? Not only had they stood me up for the entire day, but when I called for them to fix the problem and give me some answers, they deliberately stood me up a second time, had me sitting around for two hours waiting for my phone to ring, and they never called. So I called them up, and they want to know why I'm upset. I said, let me talk to your supervisor. They transfer me to a woman that I start talking to. She says, what's the problem? So, you know, this is the like the fourth person I've talked to. Now I have to tell the whole story again that I just told the other four people, and I get done. And I said, by the way, I'm recording this call. I was, I was recording the call because it was the only thing I had to hold them accountable. The woman tells me, FedEx does not approve uh, the recording of these phone calls. I said, um, excuse me, what state are you in? She says, sorry. I said, what, what state in the United States are you in exactly? She says, oh, um, Mr. Barnett, I, I'm not in the United States. I'm in Central America. <laughs> I said, well, then what makes you think that I care what FedEx approves or not? Where I live, I'm not subject <laughs> to whatever laws that you live under in Central America. And the laws where I'm at allow me to record this phone call. Well, she got pretty nice after that. I mean, I still wasn't happy. She still wasn't giving me a straight answer. She couldn't tell me why their system said that the package would be here on the 29th. She couldn't tell me why they said they'd put a trace on it and call me back in two hours, but never did. Now we get to the kicker. Today, the package is supposed to arrive, right? After 4 o'clock, I check their website to see when my package is going to be delivered or even if it's going to be delivered. And it shows that it has been delivered. It's on my front porch. So I go out to my front porch. Do you know what I see on my front porch? Nothing. Nothing on my front porch. My front porch is bare. Completely bare. 
So now what am I supposed to think? Well, they've either, they've, they've either delivered it to somebody else's house or they delivered it to my house and somebody run up and stole my package, which is very unlikely because I live in a nice, nice neighborhood where that's, that's just very unlikely. And the third option is they're just all incompetent and they don't know what they're doing. And they're just kind of running a circus over there. So I call up FedEx. I'm on the phone with them for 30 minutes. I feel like I'm finally getting somewhere. When I hear a truck pull up, they get out, they put the package on my porch, and then I have to tell the lady, they just delivered my package. Now, before you go, ma'am, I would like you to tell me why these people are driving around my town reporting that packages are delivered 30 minutes before they actually get to the house and deliver the package. Oh, she's got no answer for that either. So, you know, very, very frustrated. I told them in no uncertain terms that the world expects better from FedEx. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, up until the last couple of days, I had a very high opinion of FedEx. But this, I cannot be the only person having this experience right now. And to me, this is just a sign that the company is going into the shitter. I, I can't think of a better warning sign than complication after complication after complication like that over a simple pack, one package that they're supposed to deliver at an address that is not at all difficult to find. But this is, this is the reality that I dealt with. So um, about two hours ago, my phone started ringing off the hook. Guess who it was? It was FedEx wanting to talk to me about my package not being here. It's FedEx calling to talk to me about why my package isn't here. That means that the person I was talking to on the phone when my package was delivered and I told her, my package is here, can you please tell me why these people are driving around the neighborhood reporting packages as delivered that they haven't delivered? So she knew that my package had been delivered and yet... She didn't get the message to the people in that company, in FedEx, who need to know that the package is actually here. So now they're calling me left and right, wanting to help me. And guess what? I'm loving it. I am loving it. Let, let me put them out for a while, right? What goes around comes around. So there's my big frustrating story for today. Now you see the practical application when I tell you that people who are emotionally healthy, as I claim to be, this doesn't mean that we never get frustrated, we never get mad. In fact, I was very mad, I was very frustrated, and guess what? I, I was perfectly justified in all of that. I was perfectly justified to be frustrated and mad. I was perfectly justified to call them out on, you know, they're taking advantage of my time like that. What it comes down to is what kind of treatment do I see as acceptable from others? And that, by a premier company, a worldwide company that has this, has up until now has had, had this stellar reputation with me, that's not acceptable. 
I, I won't just stand around and let, let myself be mistreated like that because I like myself too much to just stand around and let them treat me like my time is less valuable than their time. So there's a, there's a, uh, a working example for you all. Now, let's get into this conversation with Sonia. Her name is Sonia. I think she pronounces it. You're going to love this conversation. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. The audio, it could have been better if I had not lost that whole recording. But you're going to enjoy it anyway. So endure the program for through the static and through some of the, you know, the audio issues. And you'll, you'll learn some gems. Sonia, this is for you. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of yours, that you get to listen to it over and over again, and that you get to share it with people you care about. Sonia, you have a wonderful weekend if I don't get to talk to you. And my audience, I'd like to wish you the best weekend of all time. I got my buddy coming up. He's going to come up this weekend. And uh, we're going to play some cards, drink some booze, have some nice conversation, and probably watch some uh, scary movies or science fiction movies. Or something. We're just going to have fun. Uh, so I hope you all do something nice for yourselves as well. And with that, let me welcome Sonia onto the program. Enjoy. You can yeah, hear me? I can see. Yep, Brian's recording. It says, okay. And I have your permission to record, right? You have my permission. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, we've got sort of a special guest here tonight with us. This is Sonia. And what's your last name, Sonia? For sure. <laughs> Yeah, I can never pronounce that in a million years. No, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> but you you say it perfectly. I do. I've practiced in my entire life to say it. <laughs> well, I'm real glad to have you here tonight. You're over in Sweden. I am, yeah. And I'm here in the United States, and but we're all dealing with the same stuff right now, this COVID-19. Yeah. And uh, before we start recording here, you were telling me some of the difficulties with that in your particular circumstances you want to tell us about that yeah i'm a muslim and we are we just started uh, ramadan uh, which means that we are fasting uh, all of the sunlit hours like when the sun is up we fast and when uh, when the sun goes down we we can start eating and drinking again and um, there's a tradition to have friends and family over to to break the fast together but we can't do that anymore and we can't go to the to the mosques and have the nightly prayers, which is um, something that happens every Ramadan. We go to the mosque and and pray long prayers during the night, basically. And we're not allowed anymore because all the masjids are closed. So it's it's a different it's a different Ramadan this year. But it sounds like you're adapting. Everybody's adapting. Yeah, um, we are trying to see it in the light of having. Um, having time to 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 enjoy time with family and maybe calm down a bit and read some Quran instead of having a party and reflecting on our religion and being we're just trying to be grateful instead <laughs> so um it's late for you where you're at um it's mid-afternoon for me and so you said that you're feeling a little tired and run down because you've been fasting all day right yeah. 
and the first few days are always the most uh, uh, the most difficult. So I'm I'm a bit tired. Yeah. Well, I have been trying to fast, but not for any religious purposes. Just to try to lose the 20 pounds I've put on since we started quarantine. So <laughs> I I understand the struggle. Yeah, it can be hard. Yeah. You and I at first spoke uh, just a couple of days ago. That was a really nice conversation. It went on for a while. And during that conversation, I got to thinking that you might be beneficial for a lot of my listeners um, because they might identify with a lot of the things that you, you're you dealing with, some of your early struggles and how far you've come along. Tell us a little bit about how you first discovered my work and your kind of your initial reactions to that because I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, I, I read some of your articles and I thought that, well, this guy, <laughs> you know, he thinks he has all the answers and he's like, um, I can't find the words. He's, uh, well, I didn't trust you. I didn't like you. I actually think in our conversation the, the other day, I used the word, I hated you <laughs> because <laughs> I had, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I, I, for some reason, looked you up on YouTube and found this podcast that you're that you have oh, this podcast actually this <laughs> and and then you spoke with this like cowboyish voice no sorry accent and I just thought that this guy is probably a racist and he has no brains and he's like this American idiot and <laughs> why, why should I trust him you know but um, I, for some reason, I just couldn't stop listening. And a few episodes in, I was sold. Like you, you turned me around. <laughs> would you say it took ten episodes, or would it, did it take three? No, three, maybe four, something like that. Yeah. Then, really? yeah. Pretty quickly, I realized that I was wrong and you were right. So. So how long have you been with me now? You you said about a year, right? Yeah, I think a year in the group. But uh, when I'm thinking about it, like it was cold outside when I first started listening to you or snow on the ground. So I'm guessing maybe a year and a half now. I don't know if you heard the last couple of uh, episodes that I've done and I did a little video thing this week. Most people start off hating me. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not that's not unique. But what is very unique, eh, maybe I shouldn't say unique. What is very impressive is that something inside of you said, I'm going to keep listening because I really want to fix this thing. Yeah. Nothing else had, like none of the other information that I had fixed it. Like it didn't make it better. And I have read a lot on the topic. Like ever since I found out that I have borderline at 21 years old, I, I, I've read everything that have kind of crossed my path. But this, your work was the only thing that actually made any sense in a way. When you first started, you were at a certain place as far as your disorder goes, your emotional health. There's still things you struggle with, but you were telling me that you've come a long way. I have, yeah. It's becoming clear like uh, that I've moved several steps up the ladder towards recovery. Can you share with people in what ways you've noticed that? Um, what are the indicators that you've made progress? It's um, some major things and some more subtle things. Like I have more good days than bad now. And when I have bad, I can usually 
can usually understand where I went wrong or where where the like shame spiral started and I can analyze it and uh, put myself back on track I have much more energy like uh, I used to I used to a lot of energy used to go towards uh, trying to make myself less shameful basically trying to do something or to think differently or just do something to make to make the shame go away and it never did and that sapped all the energy out of me and that's that's mostly gone can you paint a picture for us about what your living situation is uh, are you married are you single are you uh, do you have uh, 10 kids do you have no kids do you have one <laughs> child yep i have a child he is six years old and I have him every other week. The other week he spends with his dad, who I am divorced from. Um, we live in a small town and I don't work because this disorder has made it impossible for me to work. As a Muslim, how has borderline personality, because when you and I were talking the other day, we I mentioned how emotional unhealth, emotional disorder affects everything in our lives, including our relationship with God and the way that we perceive that he perceives us. So what kind of struggles have you had as a Muslim and um, what improvements have you made in there the more you've learned? Well, I've had a difficult time with the whole idea that God or Allah that he loves me. I was so like filled with shame that I couldn't internalize Allah's love. I couldn't understand that he actually loves me because why would he? Like I've never done anything to deserve his love. But as I've been, as I've grown, I've understood that it's nothing that I do um, is making me deserving his love. He's just um, the fact that I have a soul and I'm a, I'm one of his creations is making me worthy of his love because he said so. And it's easier for me to trust that now. I don't... Um, it's like when I sin, because I do and everyone does, I can bounce back because... I know that he's ready with his forgiveness and I can take it. I don't have to feel ashamed of myself. I have to feel guilty. And then I say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And then it's gone. Like it's scratched from my record and I can, I've internalized that. So I feel, I feel safer now in God's presence. I feel that I don't have this idea that he's like an angry, punishing kind of entity because he's not, that's not the way he's describing himself. Well, you know, as we were speaking about shame the other day, to put it very simply, shame is the feeling that one is unlovable. Right. So that was something I also dealt with, feeling not that God didn't want to love me, but feeling like he couldn't love me because yeah. of my inherent nature was so flawed. Yeah. You know, it really does. Shame really does uh, destroy everything in a person's life. Yeah, it even creates like this um, this uh, wall between you and God, and that's like the it's one of the biggest losses that you can't feel that. And of course, the more shame we feel, 
the more inclined we are to do shameful things that just feed the sense of shame that we already feel. Right. Like a Um, self-fulfilling prophecy. A person who feels like they are inherently without worth, they may try to do things to combat that, that that underlying belief, but eventually they'll burn out because uh, you just cannot foster any genuine long-term motivation for anything that you secretly believe is a complete lost cause, right? So uh, Mm -hmm. somebody who views themselves as inherently bad or broken or shameful, deep down they know that there's nothing they're ever going to do that's ever going to change that. They can do a thousand good deeds a day for the rest of their life. And when they die, if they're living on a foundation of shame, they will die thinking that there's a piece of shit who did a bunch of good stuff. <laughs> right. Oof, that sounds so harsh, but it's true. Yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, the, the, what's the point is what right. comes up. Like, what, why Why am I doing this? It doesn't, it doesn't give me anything. It doesn't benefit me in any way. I always feel like it's necessary to tell the audience that I understand that everybody who's listening is are not religious. Uh, not everybody believes in God. But I appreciate them allowing me to talk about it from time to time because the fact of the matter is that many of us do. And it really is a major consideration when it comes to recovery. There are a lot of things that people who believe in God have to rectify and balance out between their understanding of um, these adjustments and their perspectives that they have to make and whether or not it's in line with their understanding of what God expects of them and stuff. So one example I gave was that uh, often when I talk to Muslim followers of mine or people who listen to the program or whatever, one major hang-up that they've had often is this idea that you don't dishonor your mother. And that can be a real problem with borderline personality disorder because the reality is that our parents are the are the cause of it. Yeah. So it's been my job to help Muslim followers specifically understand that true honor does not involve permitting any type of behavior or any type of unhealth. Rather, the objective is to do what is in the genuine best interest of ourselves and others. So when we apply the principles and the laws that we often talk about here at The Last Symptom, what you're doing is you're showing your mother or your parents genuine honor. You're you're trying you're doing the one thing you can do to help them escape unhealth and enjoy for themselves also genuine inner peace and contentment. And you know, if you think about it, opening up their relationship with God even better. Um, there's definitely no nothing dishonorable, for example, about applying things like boundaries, consequences, putting in place conditions. This is loving. You know, if you think about it, this isn't hateful. It's not spiteful. It's a loving thing that we're doing for ourselves and for them. Yeah, and there's also like, there is a slight, I'm not an imam or anything. I'm not a learned person, scholar, but I've, um, we're not supposed to, like all we are asked to do is do our best, you know. And sometimes our best is to maybe call our mom once a month. Or maybe send a postcard on Eid because we like um, we're not supposed to overburden ourselves. We don't have to live like a toxic uh, 
we don't have to stay in a toxic relationship even if it's our mom you know we're just required to do our best and sometimes our best isn't what someone else's best is we, there's this concept that Allah never burdens a soul with more than he can with more than he has the capacity to bear that's the christian belief as well really oh. yeah yeah so like if your mom is more than you can bear right now then it's okay to to take a break you you can breathe you don't have to you're not a you're not a slave to her you're a slave to Allah you know so and Allah has said to respect your mom and to give her all of your best. All of your best doesn't have to be like a very close relationship sometimes if your mom isn't if your mom is a toxic person then it's okay to to take a, take a step back from the relationship. Maybe not right. for forever. You can reevaluate like if she starts to behave nicely with you then fine, let her in, you know, but it's, uh, I think it's a bit misunderstood, that concept of the, of the, of the mother. And that's really kind of the nature of the misunderstandings and misperceptions that uh, everybody with borderline personality disorder are dealing with, whether they yeah. are religious or not, is that very subtle misunderstandings and just a slight adjustment sometimes can make all the difference. I'm I'm sure. I know for certain that was true in my case. It just took very a couple very slight adjustments, but those two very slight adjustments caused some very big walls to come down and completely allowed me to redefine everything that I that I had been looking at and misinterpreting for for my entire life. I had one of those. It's not long ago, like it's not long ago it's quite fresh still that i had this idea that if i just if i just um, exercise then that would make me a worthy person or if i just if i'm active all the time or if i'm producing something then that's what's going to give me worth mm -hmm. but then i just one day it just struck me that that's wrong that's not right and that's it changed everything because now I no longer connect uh, my worthiness with anything that I do, which makes me free to do more stuff. It's like um, exhilarating uh, because I can do stuff now without like being burdened with if I don't do this, I'm shameful, you know. Right. Liberating. Liberating is the word. Yeah. Thanks. For a lot of men, the thing you're describing would be like, reaching age 35, 40, 50, and not making 200 grand a year, mm. not having any great accomplishments as far as their profession goes. Yeah, it's certainly true in my case, getting to almost 40 and had lost everything that I ha had and uh, going, you know, seven years trying to rid myself of borderline personality disorder, which involves trying to come to accept that that I just have inherent worth. It doesn't matter what clothes I'm wearing or anything. I'm, right. And, but at the same time, counting out pennies at the gas station. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that, you talk about putting a test on whether or not you truly believe in inherent worth or not. Right. Uh, try, try counting pennies at a gas station for, for oh. dollars worth of gas. So you're a mom. You've got a six-year-old. I do. Now, obviously, there must be some concerns with being a mother to a six-year-old who's had 
who's been dealing with some of these things up until recently. And now your yes. worries about how that might affect him. How tell us about that and how have you made some adjustments in your thinking about that and how has that improved things uh, as a mother? I've um, understood that the fact that I'm trying to change and the fact that I'm working hard to change is going to have a positive impact on him. Like it's not, I'm not screwed yet. It's like, it's not too late. He can learn. If I can learn how to, how to improve, then he will see that I'm working hard and that's going to affect him positively. Mm, this was hard for me. It's like my words, like um, <laughs> my right. thoughts have just flown, flown out. I know that we had a discussion about this and we raised some good points. Well, you know, I think that the point uh, that we've made during our private conversation is that really it's the example that you're setting. That not that, not that people are perfect and not that parents are ever perfect, but the willingness to right. first look inward. Secondly, the willingness to be honest with oneself, even when it hurts, and say, yeah, I'm doing that wrong. And third, the willingness to put in real effort to change, you know, rather right. than just talking about changing, but putting yeah. in the real effort. These yeah. things are going to, you know, these are tools. He's watching mom. And then when he grows up into a young man, he he's going to have his own issues. Everybody does. Yeah. But he's going to have that model to reflect back on. He's not going to say, well, only wimps analyze themselves. Uh, only wimps uh, worry about these sorts of things. Only wimps are put effort into trying to change who they are, you know. No, I've made like uh, his, uh, I've made a point and this has uh, from the very like start of listening to these podcasts when you describe that feelings are just, they aren't bad, like they just are, they're neutral. And ever since I understood that concept, I've been doing my very, very, very best to never, ever, ever shame him or for anything that he feels like, or say something like, that's nothing to cry about, or I'm just, I'm just letting, I'm just letting him be, and I'm letting him express himself. I'm never trying to make him feel something else or stop feeling something that he is feeling. I think that's made him feel safe with me. And I can feel that we, I know that he knows that it's okay to, to express feelings and that he's, it doesn't make me not want to be with him. It doesn't change anything. It's just a feeling. With what you just described, are you beginning to see how that is the bedrock of genuine intimacy? Yes. Oh, yes, you're right. That's what it is, isn't it? Like that's yeah. that's what intimacy is, just being allowed to share emotions. You're you're allowed to feel whatever you feel. And I Right. I don't take it doesn't make me think any worse of you or better of you because I'm feeling the same things at different times. That's it. It's also making a distinction in your mind between feelings and actions and thoughts. So we don't have any control over our feelings. We do over our, our thoughts and our actions. That's why, you know, they can be categorized as good or bad. But I'll give you an example, a personal example of mine. 
the other day, uh, my daughter says, she was crying, just crying and crying and crying. I said, here, sit down for a second. I want to understand what's going on with you. I was really, uh, to be honest with you, I was starting to get annoyed mm. because it was just going on and on. But I, you know, I'm, I'm recognizing that this is just her feeling things. Crying is just, you know, a natural result of feeling sad or frustrated or angry. And so I sat her down and what's going on? So she tells me and I just talked to her, you know, no judgment whatsoever. Mm. Well, she must have enjoyed that so much that later <laughs> she was kind of knocking things around and goose stomping all over the house. <laughs> And I called into her and I said, Eloise, you're not allowed to behave any way you want to behave. You're allowed to feel any way you want to feel. But that doesn't mean you're allowed to behave any way you want to behave. Right. So the crying is fine. Knocking, you know, throwing her toys around and stuff. That's not fine. Because now we're moving from what she's just feeling to now how she's behaving. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My kid he likes to punch like he throws punches towards me not hard ones but yeah he likes to punch things or me when he becomes angry and i tell him like it's okay to be angry that's fine but you do not punch you do not punch me when you're angry right, because yeah. that's 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 what's not okay you know the feeling is fine be angry be be super duper angry but don't throw punches <laughs> right right there are healthy what mr rogers the guy that i did a couple episodes on earlier this year uh, or last late last year i can't remember you know he's a a guy here that did children's program for uh, for children obviously for uh, many years he and he was based in pennsylvania uh, pittsburgh generations of children have grown up with mr rogers but that was one thing that he really was kind of the cornerstone of his message was there are lots of healthy ways to express whatever you're feeling, but that feeling is whatever you feel is just fine. You know, I've read, for example, studies that have shown that punching things, you know, to reference your son, <laughs> <laughs> that's not healthy. It, it actually encourages outbursts of anger and um, kind of uncontrolled behavior when people do get angry. So, you know, when you're catching this right now, when your child's six and you can make him believe the truth, which is that, you know, he can make an angry face, he can clench his fists, he can take a walk, he can take a shower, um, he can eat tons of gummy bears. I don't know. You know, <laughs> there are lots of things you can do. And that's just a normal expression, a natural expression of being angry that doesn't cross the line into uncontrolled behavior. So you said that you don't, you haven't had to make a lot of adjustments because you kind of self isolated anyway. That's right. Yeah. I'm a loner. Do you have friends? I have acquaintances, I guess. And then I have my sister. I didn't grow up with her uh, because I'm adopted. I I knew her from the age of 19, and she's my, my best friend. Yeah, but I don't know if that counts as family or a friend. Maybe both. I'm so glad you brought that up. We almost passed that up, the fact that you're adopted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, because the conversation we had the other day was a private conversation, there are some things I would like to share with the audience, but I don't want to share without, you know, you volunteering that information. But... 
What? Um, tell me about that. Some of the difficulties about you being adopted, um, how this has affected, you know, your because all of us who when we authentically recover from borderline personality disorder, it involves us looking back at those relationships or those early experiences in our life, what they communicated to us. T- tell us about that work and, you know, just a little, give us some insight on that. Yeah, right. So I'm still actually, um, I'm still in the middle of trying to figure this whole thing out because growing up, I didn't want to think about being adopted at all. But then like a year ago, it just hit me like, whoa, I'm adopted. And maybe that means something, especially when learning about uh, abandonment and such things. Like I was actually abandoned twice, like first by my biological parents and they that's i mean they abandoned me there's no other they they, that's what they did they abandoned me to strangers and then those strangers who became my new parents they kind of emotionally just abandoned me so kind of a double whammy yeah exactly so I'm not fully, like, I haven't fully worked that out yet. Like, what's what? What comes from the adoption and what comes from my parents? And was I was I a lost cause from the beginning, maybe? Because I couldn't connect so that my un, un, unabil, inability to connect to my new parents made them, like, it's... Maybe if, if, you, if you, as a new parent, have, a, like, a shame, if you have shame then maybe you will feel attacked by this new baby who don't connect to you. Like you will find that it's it's a personal thing. Like they will find, they will feel shame because I couldn't connect. So were you the only one adopted in your family? No, I have an adopted sister too. She's two years older than me. Okay. I didn't know if she was natural born or if she was adopted also. You know, it's interesting to me that, uh, I often talk to people who are adopted, and it's it's just amazing to me how often these adopted children ended up with parents who obviously had incorrect, unhealthy perceptions about feeling self and life. Mm, right. Because it could have ended right there. Like, you know, it, it's bad enough. And you said that there was never a time when you didn't know that you were adopted, right? Right. I've always known. Right. But subconsciously beneath all that was the message or the, the doubts, right? Um, why would they have given me up mm. if I wasn't worth giving up? That's it. Right. That's it. Yeah. And so we it, live with that, you know, as an adoptee, we live with that constantly. And it gets, in my case, I tried not to think about it. Uh, so I kind of almost forgot that I was adopted. Like it wasn't a thing in my life. <laughs> Strange right. because I've, con- I've like reconnected with my siblings that they they got to stay in the family. Uh, and I've reconnected in adult age. And but still I couldn't like, um, I couldn't see myself as an adopted person. I don't know. <laughs> it's strange. I'm trying to like hide things from myself because it's it's hard, I guess, to to acknowledge that I, I grew up and felt that way, like I that someone didn't want me. So I ended up 
somewhere else and I didn't fit there either. So like, what does that say about me? My parents didn't want me. And then my second parents show that they don't want me either. Like they wanted a kid. They didn't necessarily want me. That kind of thing. Kind of an inanimate piece of property. Yeah. Right. I was theirs. Mm. I was theirs. And I acted that way too. I tried to shape I tried to make myself to be what they, what I thought that they wanted me to be. And I kind of squashed my own personality down. I tried to like tone it down a lot so that I would fit more into, into their family and to, to their expectations of what children does or how children, yeah. What children, what, what's it like to be a child in their family? Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. I definitely had to be closed up in my own self when I was a kid. Um, could not, I mean, I had to choose what I revealed in order, and I had to be slick about it. Right. Because I knew if I revealed the wrong things, that that would result in anger, discipline. You know, and I'm not talking about anything outrageous. I'm talking about, do you like this asparagus? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? like little things, tiny yeah. things that... There was a lot of contempt in my family. That's what I was most afraid of, to be to be viewed upon with contempt, like like I was disgusting or lazy or anger was better for me than the contempt that some that they showed sometimes. You mentioned that your father, when you when you start to share, even slightly share how you feel, uh, he starts to roll his eyes. Yeah. It's, um, it's a thing that he does and it shows his, his contempt, his, his yeah. disgust basically. Right. And so you're, still... you're, you're inconveniencing him by feeling things. Right. Right. So there's messages that this is what I keep trying to tell people that it's not necessarily how they treated us necessarily, or even the things they said to us. It's their attitudes. Right. Because you can observe what somebody's attitude in the roll of an eye or the, the huff of a breath, you know, or even the way they use silence and stuff. So it really is a, it's a decoy duck to think that trauma itself is what causes borderline personality disorder. It's really not. It's, it's the attitudes they had towards feeling self and life themselves. We pick up on that. We're, we're very sensitive to it. We're reading our, the messages that are coming from it. And then we use that to uh, cement our own understanding of reality. My, my own father treats my feelings as if they're irrelevant and shameful. My feelings are irrelevant and shameful. They don't, right. just, they don't just define, you know, when we're watching that, we're not just seeing that as children and thinking, all right, well, this is my father's opinion. No. <laughs> no, it becomes the reality and you, you, make, right. it, you make it your own too. Like right. uh, if he thinks I'm, I'm bad, yeah, I'm bad or I'm disgusting or lazy and that's, that's just the way it is. Exactly. They are the ultimate authorities that we learn from. Yes, so you've been let down twice. You know, you got the message from just knowing that you were adopted that there must be something wrong with you. 
Otherwise, why would your why would your parents give up their baby? And then yep. you moved over to these uh, these new parents who I'm sure care about you, but they do, uh, they do. I know they do, but obviously don't have a proper perspective on feelings, and so they didn't treat your feelings with the proper attitude that your feelings deserved. It's you know it's a real pickle because you know even me in my own case. I've just got the one parent, set of parents to uh, figure out how I'm going to rede- redefine that relationship and and manage it moving forward. And yeah, here you and and you say you've gotten in contact with your birth parents. Yeah, I do. My my birth father he died uh, a, a while ago. I never had the chance to met, meet him, but I met my 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 biological mom and I met my all my siblings I have a sister from my mom's side and I have uh, two sisters and a brother from my dad's side and we're close I mean I go visit them especially my oldest sister from my dad's side she's she's my best friend we see each other we we don't even live in the same country but we see each other several times every year so <laughs> please tell me and uh, you know by extension please tell everybody what you expressed to me about the feelings of having your birth father passed away, the kind of the the catch-22 that puts you in. I can't confront him. I can't ask him anything. I will never know what happened because I, I will never know what, why he did what he did, why he, why it was a thing, why it was okay for him to leave me but stay with with his other three children. I guess he was in and out of their life. He wasn't a great father, so maybe I dodged a bullet, but I, I still don't have the chance to do that. I still, I don't have the chance to tell him how angry I am or how disappointed I am and how much it's actually hurt me. <laughs> it would be nice if I could do that. So you said it kind of makes you feel like you're left without any outlet for those things. It does. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm stuck with them to, to deal with them on my own. Do you remember what we said that uh, the solution would be? To kind of treat it, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but to kind of think about it as the way I'm going to handle things with the dad that I do have. Uh Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's the point I wanted to get made. The solution that you will eventually have to come to with your deceased father is the same solution all of the rest of us who do not have deceased parents have to come to in the exact same fashion. Mm. So it doesn't matter if they're deceased or alive. The solution is the same solution. And that is our inner peace and contentment is never going to depend on them. Right. Right. Recovery and our advancement in recovery is not going to depend on them understanding or them hearing and accepting what we're saying. No. So even in my case, with my father, the solution is the same as if he were dead. It's that acceptance, accepting that what is, is. The answer, the the relief is not going to come from him acknowledging what he did or suddenly showing me genuine love. The real answer is me accepting that that's never going to happen. Isn't that ironic? So the feelings that you're left with are the feelings that all your other fellow recovering people 
you know, you're all in a big elite club, let's say. (laughs) And they're all listening to this program. And they're all in the same boat with you, even if their parents are alive. Right. Isn't that ironic? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's just that I have to do it twice and in two different ways. (laughs) And actually, it might be more difficult to do with the with the father who's still alive. I probably because, you know, as angry as I am with him, I still I'm not ready to confront him about it. I don't want to say anything like uh, I want to, but I don't want to. It's strange. You know, again, that's saying something to him is not necessary. It's not it's it's not the secret to your progress. Right. It's it's your coming to accept that what is, is. And that, well, we, you know, you and I, we talked about it. It's like when somebody we love dies and they're gone mm-hmm. and we rebel against that, our emotions rebel against that. That's called mourning, right? But coming out of mourning, which sometimes can take, I told you that with my friend Jordan, it took at least five years. Uh, coming out of that is acceptance. It's when your emotions finally say, okay, I give up. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is the new reality. And there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can change it. I don't agree with it and I don't like it, but I accept that this is what it is. And then it liberates you. You can move forward. Right. Yeah. It's that thing about acceptance. We had a discussion about that too. I, I told you I don't like that word. I don't want to accept things. It doesn't <laughs> it doesn't sit right with me. But then I I googled it a little bit and investigated like what's actually in the word acceptance. And if you'll allow, I'll I'll tell you what I found because it was profound for me that I actually. I haven't quite understood or wanting to understood. I haven't accepted what acceptance means, <laughs> you could say. Please, but, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I found that inside like inside the concept of exception and sorry, acceptance is to endure patiently, to receive willingly and to submit to. And those that helped me to see that that there's like I have to be patient that's a part of being accepting and that I have to take it on willingly I can't it doesn't I can't try to want to change anything still because that would mean that I haven't accepted anything yeah you know what I think of when I when I heard you say that was that nobody else can make you do it so really it's correct the only way a person accepts anything is if they choose to so right. it's, it's not agreeing with a thing, but it is willingly saying, uh, I submit to the reality that this is. Right. It just is what it is. I know it's everybody's favorite phrase, right? Just is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll tell you why I hate that phrase so much, because I was once, you know, I worked for many years as a Spanish interpreter in, in the hospitals. And I was once working with a doctor, with a guy who was about the age I am now. Not the doctor, the patient was about the age that I am now. And um, the man was there to get his test results read to him. So we went in and it was just the doctor and me and the patient. And the doctor says, 
your test results came back positive, you have about four weeks to live. And he said it like, now can I get on with the rest of my work? And uh, mm. it was really insensitive. And mm. But as an interpreter, as a skilled professional interpreter, you're not there to change the message with tone and all this stuff. So you, you got to present it pretty much the way it's given. Mm. And so I said, yeah, your test results came back positive. You get about four weeks to live. And the man was just sit, standing there with his mouth agape. Like it was the last thing on earth he expected to hear. Mm. And, uh, he said, but, 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 and the doctor uh, was, you know, kind of like absentmindedly kind of scribbling on a pad of paper and kind of looked over his shoulder and said, it just is what it is. <laughs> Ouch. And I had to interpret that to this guy who just found out that he only has four weeks to live ever since then <laughs> that expression, it just is, Hey, it just is what it is. I mean, I get the willies oh. saying that, but you know, in this line of work, there, there's just not, no other expression that really encapsulates so well the idea of acceptance. It is just what it is. Mm. Uh, so there you go. I also rebel at the term acceptance. <laughs> I also don't agree with <laughs> I also don't agree with having to say that to people, but in the end, I accept that that's it is what it is. Mm. because it is <laughs> right. That because story, there's just no that other story expression. is going to haunt me. That's terrible. I Isn't can't terrible? imagine what that doctor was thinking. I don't know. There, you know, there are a lot of doctors who are just jerks, but there's a lot of really good ones too. And and there's so many jerks that when you meet the really good ones, you value them even more because you realize they've run in groups of kind of the elite, and they've still managed to maintain their humility. That's mm. cool. I really like that. So let's, uh, let's lighten the mood here a little bit. Tell us <laughs> some, uh, some of your hobbies. I don't have hobbies, so that's not a good one. What's your favorite color? My favorite color? Oh, that's it's like a difficult one. It depends on my mood. Sometimes I like pink, but there always has to be like a touch of black or gray inside the pink so it doesn't become too bright and in your face. But then... So not California <laughs> pink. No, <laughs> not the California, no. California bikini band. <laughs> no, I kind of like the, you know, more toned down and earthy colors. And then always black. I don't know if I will stop like having the stop liking black as I become more happier. Maybe I will. But I've always liked black. And I've always like when people have asked me, I've said that it's black is my favorite color. Well, those two colors are very complementary. I mean, not in an artistic sense. I mean, when you're talking in an artistic sense, the complementary colors are whatever the opposite of that color is. So, like when mm. you're painting, I don't know how many people know this, but when you're painting, well, I, you know, if you look at the Last Symptom website, it's all blues and oranges. Right. There's a reason for that. That those colors are opposites. Yeah, they so, make each other pop. Right. But you know, in the sense of just being complimentary as far as just looking at a, at colors together. Black and pink really, really enhance <laughs> each other, don't you think? Well, maybe they do, yeah. Favorite movie? Oh, that's easy. Titanic. It's always really? going to be Titanic. Really? Is there a reason for that? I don't know. Maybe Jack Dawson is the reason. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> 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 no, but 
it's just the clothes and the, I like to look at the people and I like to look at the aesthetics of that movie. I think it's uh, it appeals to me and the music as well. I I love that movie. <laughs> Does it break your heart to know that the Titanic will probably disappear completely within a decade? Yes. I've been watching the like documentaries of it, and they're saying that it's like getting eaten by those uh, bacteria or something. And it's so sad. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing to me how even in, with given today's scientific advancements and, and understanding, they're still finding that the Earth has a remarkable ability to correct all of man's mistakes. Right. You know, this latest oil spill, which uh, was deep, deep water horizon, uh, was spilling like tons and tons and tons of oil into the ocean per second. And they thought it was going to be the worst of all time. And um, just a few months passed and they realized that they didn't they weren't seeing any of the pollution that they thought they were going to see. And then they found that there was a kind of a an oil eating bacteria in the water or something that had oh, wow. completely, you know, it completely kept that, that massive pollution at bay. It had mm. not been anywhere near as extensive as they thought it was going to be. Wow. Just unbelievable nature. I, I all I can think of saying is subhanAllah, but that's, would, that would just be understandable for the Muslim audience. So <laughs> no translation for that. Uh, sort of like, oh my God, but uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh my God in Arabic, I guess. <laughs> I thought you held the key to understanding that, no, that ocean I don't. bacteria. No, <laughs> it's just the creation of Allah is amazing. That's all. Like God has the answer. <laughs> A story that I don't think I've told anybody here yet. So I'll just tell you and they'll get to hear mm-hmm. it. Uh, you, I, of course, you know that I grew up in the deep woods and lived in a way that, you know, most people only see in old westerns and stuff. But right, my brother and I, we pitched an old army pup tent one summer, and we slept in that tent all summer long. It was about two miles back in the woods, so it would come time to go to bed. We'd go in, brush our teeth, you know, say good night, and then he and I would trudge back through the woods to this old little pup tent. Well, one night we got in a fight. Uh, you know, we'd been pent up in this little tiny pup tent for all summer. And uh, we got into a real fight, like a, a punching and biting fight. Uh-oh. And I said, oh, I hate you. I got out of the tent. And I decided I wanted nothing else to do with him that night. And I started walking down through the woods without a flashlight or anything. So I'm, I've got my hands out and I'm feeling the trees and I'm just kind of going down this into this holler. And uh, after I figured that I'd gotten enough distance between him and me, I sat down there in the dark and plopped up against a tree and I fell asleep. And I woke up. It must have been like three, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and uh, still leaning against that tree. And I was just kind of looking around through the dark. And I was admiring the moonlight splashed down on the forest floor, coming through the, you know, like the foliage. And it was splashed down on the forest floor. I thought, boy, that's beautiful, that moonlight. And I looked up to see where the moon was. And the sky was pitch black. There was no moon. It was a cloudy night. Mm 
And I thought, what in the world? And I looked back down, and sure enough, there's moonlight splashed all over the forest floor. Well, I got down on my hands and knees and thought, where is this light coming from? And looked very, very close, and there was this very fine fungus growing on the forest floor, which was illuminating a glowing light, made it look, oh. made the forest floor look like moonlight. They call that foxfire where I'm from. So if you ever hear anybody talking about foxfire, that's what they're talking about. But, I, I, you know, I thought about that. Scientists trying to study something like that would never find it because they would go in, they would be looking through the woods with their flashlights, and you'd never see it with a flashlight. Oh, right. You would have to literally sit there in the dark long enough for your eyes to adjust and become sensitive to that light in order to be able to see it at all. And I just thought, wow, the, the, the mysteries of nature that we will probably never know uh, completely. Mm-hmm.